We're in a series right now, we started it last week, called 2020 Vision. And it's a little on the nose, it's a little obvious, but sometimes you got to do what's obvious. Like I proposed to my wife on Valentine's Day, which is almost like, it was cool though, it's so cheesy that she didn't see it coming, you know? She didn't see it coming at all. She's like, I would never have thought you would propose on Valentine's Day. I was like, well, you know, I, just, I did. It just made sense. Sometimes you have to do what's, what's obvious, and here we are in the year 2020, and that, that verbiage, 2020, it refers to clear vision. And so we're going to talk for the next few weeks about what it means for us to live with, with 2020 vision. But here's the reality. We don't. We, we do not, in and of ourselves, have 2020 vision. We don't. We don't have the ability to see what's ahead with perfect clarity. We get surprised all the time. And we find ourselves in situations very often that we just really can't see a way out of. We can't see and discern. We don't have the wisdom to, to recognize how to navigate that situation. We don't have 2020 vision. If 2019 taught me anything, it's that I don't have 2020 vision. Because at the beginning of 2019, I told my wife, this is going to be a simple year. This is going to be a year with no surprises. I was tired of surprises. I was surprised when I became the pastor here. It was a little over five years ago, and I found out, and it was like, surprise, you're in charge. Um, cool. And, uh, and in the first five years that I was the pastor, we had three children in that five-year span. So it was a very, very busy, very busy five years, and our, our last child came to us 2018. Eli was a surprise. A lot of people find out I have four kids, and they think we planned that, that we dreamed that. No, 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 no. No, no, no. We just, we overshot. That's what happened. Um, <laughs> Like, we were good with three. We were totally good with three. And then surprise, Eli, 2018. And he's amazing. He's a really good surprise. I actually can't imagine life without him. But he was a surprise. So 2019 starts, and I'm like, Megan, no surprises this year. We need a year of simplicity. We need a year where everything's just sort of chill. And if you would have talked to me at the beginning of last year, literally a year ago today, and you would have said something like, hey, Justin, what do you think of your house? I would have said, I love my house. I can't even picture moving anytime soon. I can't even picture leaving this house until maybe a few of our kids have, have grown and we need to downsize. And then we moved out in February. Um, because, uh, because surprise, the land behind our house, which was just, it was just a forest, it was just woods, privacy. It got sold to a development company and they were going to bulldoze all of that and build condos and that was really going to change our backyard and three years of construction going on behind our house and we were like, eh, I, don't, I don't think that's what we want to do. And so we said, hey, well, I, said, I made a mistake. And men... Just hear me on this. If you ever say to your wife, why don't you just look around and see if there are any houses, you're going to move. Like, if you say that, because I was like, well, we may not move. It may not be that bad. Why don't you just look around? And if you find something that you love, then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. No, you say that, you're moving. You are moving within three weeks. And so I sent that to Megan, and surprise, she found a house she loved really fast. And, but it was great. It was really great, and I was actually excited about it. So we went ahead, and we put an offer in, got accepted, moved out. Moved in with her parents, all six of us in my family. Just imagine, you empty nesters, your kids are gone. They might be back with four children one day, all right? So do not downsize until you're sure, or maybe downsize on the front end so that you're like, ah, oh, we would love to take you, but <laughs> we just have a one-bedroom, you know, it's not going to work. <laughs> we moved in, but, but here was the thing. We were only going to be there for three weeks. Three weeks, it was going to be three tough weeks, but the offer was already accepted, Everything was in motion. Our house, like, was sold. Everything was good. But, uh, surprise. The, the inspection on the house came back with some weird things, and the appraisal was all wonky, and, and it, it sort of gave us pause. And as we thought about it more and, and learned some things, we're like, I don't really think so. 
And so we said, you know what, this just isn't the right house after all. And surprise, took us another five months to find the right house. And so we lived with her parents for six months last year, supposed to be three weeks. Surprise, six months later, we moved into our house. It was a year full of surprises. And I didn't want any. I didn't want one surprise. That was my whole goal last year. No surprises. Predictable year. The crazy thing is that the one thing I was more certain of than not moving at the beginning of 2019 was not having more children. And in December, surprise, we I'm just joking. We're not pregnant <laughs> at all. I'm teasing. <laughs> oh. Oh, man. I'm sorry. The setup was so good. It was so good. Like, I saw you guys. You're like, he's got another. What are they doing? You know? Man. Just so you guys know, like, those of you that don't have kids, some of us in the room, you're, you, you want kids one day and you don't have yet. What will happen is this. You get pregnant with your first child. Everyone freaks out. You tell your, your family members, your friends, they're like, oh, my gosh, we're so excited. You know, the, the excitement level goes down each child. By the time you get to your fourth, if you share with your, your friends and family that you're pregnant again, they, they respond the same way as if you've just told them something tragic has happened in your life. You're like, we're pregnant again. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Or you're going to be okay. <laughs> We're, we're good. We're good. But it was a year of surprises. And that's the, the, the truth, is that we all, we all deal with surprises all the time because we don't have 20-20 vision. There are just certain situations. We can't see it coming. There's no way we could. No matter how hard we try, we can't see it coming. How many of us have found ourselves in situations in life where we thought, I never thought I would be here. I never thought I'd be in this situation. I could not have predicted this. The hard thing is sometimes it's good. Like, like I, I was in love with my wife a long time before she was in love with me. That's just the truth. I noticed Megan early, and I thought she was just awesome, and she showed zero interest for a, a good bit of time. None. I mean, like, none. And I never, I never thought when we were together, it was like, I never thought this would happen. I never thought I'd be in this place, and I was so excited. But then, where the rubber meets the road is that often we find ourselves surprised, not by, by good things, not by pleasantries, but by, by hardship. We're surprised and we're thinking, man, I never thought I would have to go through this. I never thought this would be my situation. And I don't know exactly what to do. If we had 20-20 vision, we would never find ourselves in those places because we would have seen it coming a mile away, but we don't in and of ourselves. But here's the beauty of being a Jesus follower. And I know that not all of us in the room are. But the beauty of being a Jesus follower is you don't have to live in and of yourself. In fact, you shouldn't. Because you have a relationship with the God who made you, and you have the ability now to live in and of him. We call ourselves a tree of life church. It's language that we use. It's been part of our history from pretty much the very beginning. There's a lot of language in scripture of, of trees. A lot of metaphors you find. For example, I, I read this one pretty often. Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8 says, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. That's what it means to live of God, not for God, not you doing your best in and of yourself to live a life that, that pleases God. But it's you living of God, saying, Lord, I need you to to empower me, I'm rooted in a relationship with you. And so now it's your power, it's your love, it's your wisdom, it's your vision, not mine. 
we have the ability to live that way. And for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what it would look like for us to do that. As much as possible for us to, to live, not with our vision, which is greatly impaired, but, but can we actually live with his vision for our lives? Can we learn to see things the way that, that God sees things? Can we learn to have his vision, his, his perspective? And the answer is, is we can. We can all grow in that. We can all have clearer vision than we have today. Because vision is it's pretty important. We've used a, a verse last week. It's the King James Version of Proverbs 29, 18. We don't use a lot of King James, but this is actually the most famous and well-known version of this, this verse. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth, you got to love those ifs in the, the King James, he that keepeth the law, happy is he. I want to park here for just a second, and guys, actually leave that up. I want you to focus on that word happy. It often gets translated joy. It's the Hebrew word for, for joy. Everybody wants to be happy. I've never met a person who doesn't. Everybody wants to be happy. Everyone wants joy. The problem is many people, most people in our world, their joy is it's at the discretion of their circumstances. And so they're happy when things are going really well, but when things aren't going well, not so much. And the hard thing about that is that the negative experiences in life tend to outweigh the positive, at least as far as the weight they carry. Maybe not in terms of how often they happen, but like think about it this way. You could be having an amazing day, like a great day, and everything's going well. Everything's clicking, and then one bad thing happens, and you're like, my day was horrible. You know? Why? Because one bad thing happened. Those negative situations, they, they tend to, to carry a lot of weight for us. And so if our happiness, if our joy is at the discretion of our circumstances, that means we are actually making our circumstances our God and saying, please be good to me. And sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But this does not tell us that our, our happiness, that our joy is dependent on our circumstances. I have known people who have gone through circumstances and situations that by any logical standard should have them broken should have them depressed, and yet they have hope and they have joy. And it's because they are not living in and of themselves. They're living by the power of God. He says, where there is no vision, you know, didn't see that coming. Didn't see that coming. I'll tell you that. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. I want us to, to understand that joy is the end goal for God in your life. He wants you to enjoy your life. And so if you're not enjoying life, you're not living the life God has for you. Even if your circumstances are difficult, God's desire is that you would have joy. He wants you to enjoy 2020. He wants you to enjoy this decade, the 20s. We're living in the 20s now. He wants you to enjoy the 20s. He has good things for you. Experiences with him that he wants you to have that, that you will always hold on to. That's his goal, but, but what this is telling us is that in order for us to experience many of those, we've got to stay on track. A couple key words here. The word, the word perish. We hear that, we probably think of like physical perishing, you know, like dying. Well, that's actually not what that word means in the original language. In the Hebrew language, the, the word is literally to loosen. So with, with there's no vision, the people loosen. And it's, it's talking about moral integrity. It's what it's always related to, that word. It means that Without proper vision, people sort of go wild, spiral out of control. People kind of become their own gods. They just start doing whatever they feel is, is best, whatever they feel is, is good. Our culture, by the way, tells us all the time that we should just trust our feelings and just do what we feel is right. Feelings are very elevated in our culture today, right? We see that everywhere. And, and those of us in the room who are young, many of us are young, 
um, young is relative, obviously. We have a very diverse church age-wise, which is awesome. That's how it should be. But those of us who are young, just understand that your culture lies to you all the time. A lot of us are just old enough to have realized it at this point. And so your culture tells you that you should be yourself. And that's, that's celebrated. Your culture also tells you you should find yourself. How do you be yourself and find yourself at the same time? It's, it's impossible. And there's no way for me to be myself while finding myself because I haven't found myself. But if I don't know who myself is, how am I supposed to find myself and be myself if I've got to go find? It just doesn't make sense, right? See, our culture tells us that in and of ourselves, we're the one that has the, the authority and the key to discovering what's going to bring us joy. Nope, that's not what this says. It says if you want that joy, you want that happiness, you need vision. Without it, you're just going to go off track, off course, and it's going to become self-destructive. That word for vision, that word does not mean your own personal vision. It doesn't mean like make goals for your life. Some of you guys are really goal-oriented people, like show of hands, and to remind me that you're still here, uh, how many of you set a resolution at the beginning of this year? You have a goal, a resolution, and you're working toward it for, wow, we are not a goal-oriented church <laughs> at all. Funny thing, and I don't know if there's anything to this, the first service was, it was a lot more hands, and those are the people that wake up early, I'm just saying, okay? <laughs> set goals. You guys are like, I just kind of get up and, I don't know, just going with it. <laughs> you know, how many of you are like, no, I've, I've, I've done the resolution thing, and my resolution is to never have another resolution because, yeah, 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 a lot more hands, a lot more hands. <laughs> this, this is not talking about that kind of vision. It's not talking about, like, you generating a vision for your life and setting goals and having dreams and aspirations. Nothing wrong with that. It's just not what this is talking about. This is not vision generated, it is, it is vision given. In fact, more modern translations actually get the Hebrew better. So, the New Living Translation, for example, says, Proverbs 29, 18, when people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. Now, that, that phrase law, that's referring to Scripture. That's what the people at the time of, of Proverbs being written would have called, would have been their shorthand version of the Torah, which was their Bible. You know, it was just a long time before it was done. So what it's telling us is that if we, if we want joy, if we want real joy, then we need to stay on track. And not just on a track that we have decided for ourselves, but we need to stay on a track that our God has prepared for us and, and wants to guide us through. That that is the key to joy. And that, that divine guidance comes in a, in a variety of ways, but there are a few main ones. There's the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised us that if we put our faith in him, that God's spirit would join with our spirit, that we would actually have the spirit of God with us, guiding us, teaching us, reminding us where to go, reminding us who he is, who we are, those kinds of things. And next week we're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. But the other, the other primary means we have of divine guidance is what we usually call scripture, God's word, the Bible. Really important that we know that. I have found that when we don't know Scripture, and this applies to me, when I don't know Scripture like I should, it's very hard for me to discern whether or not I'm hearing from the Holy Spirit or my emotions. And the better I know God's Word, the better I am at, at recognizing, like, no, that, that's God. That's God. And what this verse is telling us is that in order to have joy, in order to stay on track, to not go off track, to not spiral out of control and self-destruct, we need to accept, value, submit, learn all the words you want to use to the divine guidance of God. We have a, a word that kind of sums up that divine guidance thing. It's called revelation. Revelation. 
there are certain truths that we cannot observe on our own. We need them to be revealed to us. There are certain truths about life that we can just observe, and we, we can learn the hard way. We can have life happen to us, and we, we take our lessons, and we go, and there's a lot of value in that wisdom. You can read books galore about human wisdom, and human wisdom has its place, absolutely, but there are certain things that human wisdom just can't figure out. We need something more. For example, 1 Corinthians tells us this, chapter 1, verse 21, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He's used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. The message of Jesus was considered by many to just be foolishness. Like, you tell me, you tell me that God, all right, God, because for centuries people had thought about God, talked about God, theology was a thing, and, and people had come to all kinds of conclusions about who God is and what God must value and how God would operate, and most agreed that God's up here and we're down here. One of the things that makes the, the faith of the, the Hebrews really unique is that God loves us and is for us. In most cultures, most ancient cultures, the gods, or God, like, didn't have a high opinion of people at all and would often do things to us almost to torture us for their amusement. But, but no one, didn't matter if it was the Hebrew culture or, or, or the other cultures, no one envisioned God as, like, Jesus. The idea that God would give up being God to come and be one of us, that's crazy. And when Jesus showed up, the people who were supposed to be the experts on God, they took one look at Jesus and they were like, no, 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 no. No, 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 no way. There's no way that God is a carpenter's son from Nazareth. Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. It literally translates in the language of the culture at that time to stick town. Jesus was from the sticks. <laughs> like, seriously. Seriously. I, I heard a pastor talk about that years ago, and it, like, blew me away because, you know, I, I'm someone who's lived in cities, and I've also lived in the sticks. Like, I'm from the Ozarks in Missouri. It's the sticks. I can't, you know the show My Name is Earl? You ever see that show back in the day? I can't watch it. It's my family. It's like, I can't do it. It just reminds me of cousins and uncles and weird. I got to turn it off. You know, like I've, I've experienced both of those. And no one would expect God to live in the sticks. So Jesus shows up and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're like, nope, their human wisdom made them blind to who Jesus actually was. But what we have to understand is that this is what the plan was from all along. God says, no, 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 you're never going to figure out what I have in store. You're never going to figure out who I actually am by means of your own observation. Human wisdom, it falls short. You need me to reveal to you things that you can never observe. Revelation is greater than observation. And if we really want to have the joy that God has for us, we need to value the revelation of God. We need to value his, his word. God's word is, guys, it's powerful. It's so, so powerful. Psalm 119, verse 105, says that God's word is a lamp to guide our feet and a light for our path. I know you guys got up pretty late, but uh, I'm just teasing you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Stop. But did anyone get up early enough this morning to experience the fog? It was, it was really intense. It was really intense. So I got up super early this morning, and I, one of the things I do on Sundays is before, before the sun comes up, I'm in my car, and I'm driving to Dunkin' Donuts to get donuts for my family. We're very health conscious on Sundays, and, and uh, that way, whenever the kids wake up, it's like, here, have a donut, and, uh, you know, it's our way of saying, we're sorry you have to get up so early because you're pastor's kids. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the sun wasn't up yet, and man, when it was dark and foggy, 
if I didn't have lights on the front of my car, like, there's just, I would, I'd be dead. It, and it was like, I couldn't see more than a few feet in front of me. Well, this is telling us that God's word, that the truth revealed in scripture, it's like a, it's like a light. It's like headlights for life. And without it, we are, we are blind. We really, really need it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is right, what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. Now, many of us have the wisdom at least to know that we need some correction from time to time. Like, I doubt many of you get angry at your GPS when it tells you that you've made a wrong turn. Like, maybe you do for a second, but aren't you grateful that it tells you to turn around before you get too far in the wrong direction? I'm, I'm double blessed in life because I have my, my phone, it, the voice it talks to me in is, is a female voice. It tells me that I need to reroute, make a U-turn. But I also usually have my wife next to me who just piles on. And so I make a wrong turn, and it says rerouting, make a U-turn. And Megan's like, hey, you're on the wrong road. You need to turn around. And I'm like, I, I know. And I'm just great. I have two voices telling me that I did the wrong thing all the time. It's great. It's wonderful. I love it. And Because uh, I, I need that. I actually, I need correction. I, I get off track. I need rerouted from time to time. We all do. And Scripture has this amazing ability, because it's truth, to reroute us in life, to keep us from going off track from running wild. Now, I recognize that this is not a culturally valued opinion. That like, we should really just do what scripture says more often. That's not something you're probably going to hear spoken by our culture because it kind of goes against the idea that we're our, we're our own gods and we can do whatever we feel is best. And, and you are the authority, like young people in the room. You live in a world telling you that you, all of us really, I, I think you're young because I'm old enough finally to not feel young. Um, it's the first time I've been able to say young people and it not apply to me. It's great. And here's how you know, by the way, when that happens. The moment you have a doctor that is younger than you. That is a crazy experience, by the way. Happened to me like two months ago. I'm, I'm in a doctor's office and this guy comes in. And I'm like, he's like, I thought, I made, is your boss about to walk in, like, in the door? I'd never had a doctor younger than me and it freaked me out. I'm like, oh, I'm old now. Okay, cool. This is good. I got gray hairs. It's all happening. Um, <laughs> but like, like those of us who are young, you're told so often that you are the authority for your life. That it's up to you to figure out who you are. It's up to you to figure out who you really are deep down inside and then project that to the world and tell the world, this is who I am. And I just want you to understand that don't, don't make yourself your own God. We are not good at being God. History is literally littered with stories of people who tried to be. And it never goes well. You're not the one who created you. You're not the one who wired you. And the closer you are to the one who, who did those things, that's how you find out who you really are. But our culture doesn't tell us, yeah, yeah, just open up the word and study it and do what God says. That's not something you're going to hear. Our culture goes far the opposite of that. And, and what's really cool is that it gives us the ability to test whether or not Scripture is true. There's a verse in the Bible that says, test everything and hold on to what is good. We can test this because... Proverbs 29, 19, it says, hey, when you don't value divine guidance, when you don't follow the law, the, the word, right, all these are synonyms. If you don't go that way, then you'll, you'll be out of control and everything's going to crash. And, and we can actually say, okay, is that actually true? Is that how things work? And, and we have example after example in our culture of how that is true. For example, this is kind of awkward. Um, the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Let's talk about that for a minute in church. Um, <laughs> what was great is in the first service, uh, the, the band came out like right now. This would be the moment. 
And I was like, guys, please do not start playing music while I talk about sex. That's just going to be real weird for everybody. And they were like, oh, all right, Miss Q, cool, we're good. And so <laughs> it's not happening now. Um, you know, I want to say this real quick disclaimer. Anytime we, we talk about a specific type of, of sin issue, there's a tendency for many of us in the room to begin to feel discouraged, shame, guilt, things like that, because when we bring up things like this, um, my child just ran across the hall. That was, freaked me out. Um, we, uh, we have a tendency to, to if, if we're someone who has had missteps in that area, we're like, oh, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to feel guilty, I'm going to feel shame. I want us to understand, in order for us to experience the life God wants us to have, we've got to talk real life sometimes. But when we talk real life, it brings up baggage. Because we've, we've all made mistakes. Shame and guilt have zero place in this room. If you ever feel shame or guilt in this room, that is not from God. That is not from God. Because all of us have gone off course. I mean, Romans 3.23, it's classic scripture. Everyone has fallen short. Everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory standard. That's all of us. And so if we talk about something, and this is a part of your life where you're like, oh, man, I've, I've made mistakes in this, whatever. Um, yeah, join the club. You should never feel shame or guilt here. And here's why. God has given us boundaries for life. And he's also given us the choice to operate within those boundaries or to go outside them. Now, when you go outside of the boundaries of God, you are stepping outside of his wisdom, and that does put you at risk. But it never puts you outside of the boundaries of his love. You are never, ever at risk for being outside the boundaries of God's love for you because his love has no bounds. Jesus accomplished that on the cross. It was paid for by his blood. So no one in this room ever gets to feel like God doesn't love them. And if you do, we get to be like, stop it, because he does. But many of us can say, yeah, I've, I've stepped outside of the boundaries of his wisdom, and, and there's prices to pay there, because what he wants is he wants the best for us. And this is an example of that. So here's what I'm talking about. For most of our country's history, the cultural sexual ethic, you might say, lined up very closely with what we find prescribed in, in Scripture in the New Testament, which essentially is like, find your person, marry them, be monogamous, in that order. Do it that way. Now, not everyone did it that way. Some people tried and fell short of that. That's, that's a difficult thing to do. Some people didn't try at all. Uh, some people didn't try at all but acted like they did try, and some people did it and then made other people who didn't do it feel ashamed, right? So a lot of people get it wrong, but the point is the culturally prescribed way of doing things would have lined up with scripture. People in culture have said, yeah, yeah, that's, it, it's not easy, but that's definitely the way to do it. Do it that way. Until about the 1960s. And then the sexual revolution of the 60s happened and everything changed. And all of a sudden, it was like, forget that. Let's just figure this whole thing out ourselves. And it's, now it's like, the way it's moved over the last 50 years, it's like, whoever, whenever, wherever, however, whatever, so long as him, she, they, whatever, say, yeah. Like, that's, that's becoming the ethic of our, of our nation. It is. So much so that the, the biblical proposed method of like, hey, what if you just waited until you found the right person, then you married him, and waited till then, like, people are like, that is never, no. That's repressive. That's you, like, repressing. Okay. Let's, let's see if it actually works out. It's interesting statistics. Um, in the 1960s, there were two, two sexually transmitted diseases in our country. Two. Both of, both of which were treatable with penicillin. Two. So the first 200 years of our nation... We were averaging one STD per century. Not bad, okay? Um, since the 1960s, in the last 50 years, there are now 25. 25. So we went 200 years 
two, 50 years, just added, you know, 23. Now, I'm sure there's, there's many factors for that, but, but unquestionably, the, the change, the transformation, and, and you could say the degradation of our sexual ethic plays a massive role in that. It's almost like God's prescribed way of doing things was for our benefit. It's almost like God wasn't trying to repress us and, and keep us from enjoying life. I mean, he's the one who invented sex, after all. It's, it's almost like he wanted us to be protected, to be safe, to be healthy, to be whole. It's like God knows what he's doing and wants us to, to experience joy and not regret and those consequences. Again, no shame, no guilt for anyone in the room, but I think all of us maybe who have even experienced some of the worst that that part of life has to offer would say, no, 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 God's way is best. My life is a, is a testimony to that. What I'm trying to say is God's way works, and his word is what reveals that to us. But if we don't know his word, we don't know his way. It's just that simple. Like Satan, man, he loves it when someone doesn't know scripture. Because just it's so easy to mess with us. I mean, the very first temptation that we see in scripture happens in Genesis 3, and the, the, the way that Satan gets in is he starts to twist the words of God. And the better we know the words of God, like Jesus did, the, the, more, the more we're able to resist that. In fact, when Jesus gets tempted in Matthew chapter 3, or Matthew 4 rather, when Jesus gets tempted, every single time that he's tempted, he refutes Satan with scripture. He's like, no, 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 no. Nice try, but God's word says this. The better we know his word, the better prepared we are for life because his word is a lamp that guides us. It is light for our path. And so here's, here's why we're, we're talking about this is I, I think about what it would be like for all of us as a church, the thousands of us that, that are part of his hands, to be in scripture together, to be growing in our knowledge of God's revelation together, how powerful that would be. Because I'm sure many of us have said many times in the past, yeah, I want to be in the Word. Many of you are on a regular basis, but man, I want to be in the Word. I want to know Scripture. I'm just busy, and I don't really know what it's about. The Bible doesn't really hold your hand. You know, you open it up to Habakkuk, and you're like, what in the world is going on, right? There's no, I always joke that I used to watch TV shows that would begin every episode with a previously, and then there would be this, like, montage of the things that happen. You're like, oh, I kind of get what's going on. That doesn't happen in the Bible at all. It doesn't hold your hand, so it can be challenging. But the thing is, we're not alone. And I would imagine that most of us who have, who have studied Scripture, we've probably almost exclusively tried to do it by ourselves, and that's really hard. So we're going to start something tomorrow that I'm really excited about. It's something we're going to do all year long. We're calling it the Chapter Challenge. So this is uh, Chapter Challenge 2020, and it's very simple. It's one chapter a day, four days a week. Okay? There's studies that have come out recently by organizations that have done all kinds of research. Over 400,000 Christians were, were interviewed worldwide and asked about their, their Bible study habits. And what the study found was a, a, a clear delineation between people who studied Scripture at least four times a week and those that studied it less. And I think that's interesting because it's, it's, it's like four days a week is more often than not. You know that phrase like, more often than not? Well, if you're doing something more often than not, it means you're doing it at least four days a week. And it found that, that those who are in Scripture more often than not experience far less loneliness, far less depression, all kinds of issues that are rampant in our world that, that regular time in Scripture, it sort of protects us from that. But less than that, it, it, the statistics are kind of indiscernible from the rest of the world. There's something powerful about being in God's Word more often than not, about reflecting on it, meditating on it, thinking about it, applying it to life. But we're a church. We don't have to do things alone. And so what this is going to do really practically is every Monday through Thursday, it's four days, I want to encourage you to read one chapter of Scripture. 
One on Monday, one on Tuesday, one on Wednesday, one on Thursday. It'll probably take you a combined 20 minutes to do that. And what we'd like to do is, is encourage you to do it with us. You can do your own thing if you want, but we're going to start tomorrow with the book of Proverbs. So tomorrow will be Proverbs chapter 1. The reason we're starting with Proverbs is it's just so crazy practical. Just to give you a little preview, Proverbs 1, 2 through 4 says that the purpose of Proverbs is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives, to help them do what is right, just, and fair. These Proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. So tomorrow, Proverbs chapter 1. If you go to our website, right on the homepage, there's a link that lists out all of the chapters and all the days. If you have our mobile app, encourage you to download that. You can write on the, the homepage of our mobile app, Chapter Challenge. Click it. You'll know where we are. And then if you're, you're someone who's a social media person, Facebook and Instagram, every single Monday through Thursday, we'll post a little video that's just like, hey, this is what we, we read today. Here's some really interesting thoughts about this. Just as a way to help engage you and keep you in it, because I'm telling you, if as a church, we all spent four days a week in God's word, more often than not saying, God, show me something that's true. I'll submit to it. I'll follow it. I need, I recognize that I need you to light my way. I don't see well. I'm in a fog and it's dark and I need some lights on so that I know how to navigate. If we have the humility to say that, to recognize that, and we actually go to the, the promises that God has made, that his word will be that for us, we will see some transformation happen in our lives. And I'm just really excited about doing that with my family, doing that with you guys this year. So I encourage you, take the chapter challenge. It's going to be fun. It really is. It starts tomorrow. All right, we've got a we've got a, a person that's about to get baptized, and so I'm going to wrap up. Before I pray, though, I do want to read one thing that Jesus said because I think Jesus is the best at summing up everything we would want to know about God, and everything we've talked about today. What we talked about the fact that joy is what God wants for us, that His Word is truth, and His Word will lead us to the joy that He has. It will keep us on track, and this is something that Jesus actually prayed to God the Father. John 17, He says, "Now I'm coming to you." I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. That's his goal. He says, I've given them your word. And the world hates them because they don't belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. He says, Father, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word which is truth. We need God's truth to guide us. And he's given it to us. We've got it. So let's open it up and grow together. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And that's a, a very interesting topic. And uh, there's no way in one message to cover it all. But if you're someone that's ever wanted to know more about what it means to live by the Spirit, you know, we sing about that, you have all that, like be here next week. Don't miss that. I love you guys. I'm excited about doing this with you this year. I'm excited about getting clearer vision for life. So let's pray together and let's celebrate with some baptisms. Lord, thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for the opportunity that we have, Lord, to grow. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be led by your truth, that we don't have to be blind. We don't have to stumble around in the darkness. We don't have to try to make our way through the fog. That, Lord, you, you've promised us that you will light the way. You've promised us that you will show us the way forward. You've promised us that your word is truth and that your truth will lead us when we don't know where to go. We don't have 2020 vision, God, but you do. Thank you, Lord, for giving your vision to us. Help us grow in our ability to learn that, discern that, to know that. I pray for every person here. Lord, I do pray also that if someone hasn't given their life to you, 
that's where it all begins, that they would do that right now, that they would submit their lives to you, Lord. They would say, I believe in you. They would sign up to get baptized. They would go all in, just like we're about to see. We pray this in your name, Jesus.